All right, lots of chatter. I love it. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, another welcome to you this morning. We are uh, we're continuing in the Gospel of John together, and and before we get there, I want to zoom out a little bit. Uh, this is this is our, our graphic for for really focusing in on uh, John 15 through 17 uh, from the heart of Jesus. And so before we zoom into that, zooming out. If you're new or perhaps you came last week and you're back, you know, you hear the word gospel. What in the world does that mean? John, where does that fall? If you grab a Bible and you open it up to the New Testament, uh, which is about this far in, about three quarters in, you hit the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are gospels. It comes from the Greek word that means good news, referring to Jesus as Lord. Right? That was the original content of the gospel. You believe in the gospel, you believe Jesus is Lord. And so there's four testimonies to that fact by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because with credibility is often derived from plurality of witness. And so that is provided. And so you get four vantage points. And they're each different. Matthew writes to the Jews. And he really traces out the genealogy and, 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 and trying to explain that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Mark rushes through, very action-packed. You get Messiah, but you also get Son of God and kingship. And it's, it's, and then, and then, and then, immediately, immediately, immediately. That's Mark. Luke, historian, detail, gets in the weeds. Luke provides what we, what we call falsifiable detail, which is very important because there's so much details given in Luke that anyone who was a contemporary of the time could actually verify it themselves. They could go to the place and talk to the person and see if Luke was lying or not. That's important. Those three are called the synoptic gospels. And then you arrive at John, which is where we are, which is very different. And John doesn't start at Jesus' birth. John starts at, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And one of the focuses of the gospel of John that shines through throughout is the divinity of Jesus. You have seven I am statements. And when Jesus says, I am the light, I am the bread. In, in, in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's in the, the name of God revealed in Exodus. So putting himself on the same footing with God. And the ultimate aim of the gospel of John is found in John 20. Verse 30, it says, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the goal of this testimony. And that's where we are. Now you get into the gospel of John and you can break it up into two parts. The first half, they call the book of signs. A lot of signs, miracles. The second half, the book of glory. And the first half covers a lot of time. And then it shrinks down and focuses in. And within the second half, you have this subsection where we are today called the Farewell Discourse. This is chapter 14 to 17. And this is Jesus with his disciples. Judas has just left to betray him. He's got the 11 faithful left. And he's talking to them about what to expect, about what is to come. What does it look like to be a Christian is a major theme here. And that's where we're going to end up parking today. John 15. If you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. I'm going to pray. And we'll dive in. That, that, that's the zoom out and the zoom in. You're all caught up. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. So God, we just pray that as we read, that your word, that your truth, Lord, that, that, that what you have to say would be that which convicts and challenges, that provides comfort and encouragement, Lord, corrects and rebukes if necessary, God, but that we get to kind of let these things sink in. And Lord, we just ask that you would lay this upon our hearts, Lord, impress it upon our hearts. God, that as we walk away here, that we truly would wrestle with what it is that you have to say to us and about us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so admission of guilt. When I was in high, oh, back up. I've already shared this before. Middle school, tough years, interesting years, very insecure years, um, bullied, made fun of. A lot of you wrestled with middle school just like I did. Okay, we're all on the same footing there, most of us. Um, Move on to high school. My first two years, figuring out who I was in a lot of ways. Cared a lot about what a lot of other people thought. Went through some identity crisis. Some of you have been there. It wasn't until the end of sophomore year that I started to really enjoy high school. And the reason I enjoyed it at that point is I just stopped caring what other people thought. Teens, if there's any teens in the room that aren't over there, teens. The thing that you probably, uh, um, what am I trying to say? The thing that you will regret most about high school when you're an adult is how much you cared about what other people thought of you. And I, and I hear people kind of uttering an agreement to that because that's them. And so for me, freshman year, got into high school, most of the people I knew went to other schools, but I was a part of a lot of activities and we'd get together and I'd meet people from other schools because of it. And so I became, for my freshman year in particular, a name dropper. This was how I tried to kind of figure out where I was and try to align myself with the popular kids that I didn't really know. So I knew who the popular athletes were because I went to school with them in middle school. And then I would get together with people and one name that I actually remember because I dropped it a lot. If he ever sees this, he probably won't, but that'd be very, very embarrassing. But but we'd get together and I'd say, oh, you're from St. Bonnie. Do you know Kevin Ballard? Now he's a star football player. I went to middle school with him, played basketball a little bit, had zero friendship with him, but I knew he was super popular. But I dropped the name. Because out of association, you'd hope that that maybe they'd look at me a little bit differently. Now, when I got to college, I met people who were name droppers and they drove me nuts. I was like, man, is that how people saw me? What we see here in this text is that while in our world, you might be able to relate to being liked or disliked by association, Jesus makes it clear that the Christian, that the Christian will not just be disliked, but rejected perhaps hated by association. I'm going to read John 15. If you have your text, you can open it up. I'm going to begin verse 18. It says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Hate is a strong word. This is also in the context of an honor-shame society. Our, our culture is increasingly moving towards a shame society, right? A guilt society, you do something wrong, you apologize, you move on. Shame is you do something wrong, I destroy you. I cancel you. It's a shame-based society. The word hate, this idea of rejection or aversion to is, is what, what, that, what that word carries. Remember the word I spoke to you, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep 
your word. But they will do all of these things to you on account of my name because they know the one who sent me. A title to this sermon that, that I picked out was This Love Makes You Unlovable. And the reason is, just earlier on, preached on several weeks back, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me. The more you love Jesus, the more you look like Jesus, and you're going to encounter two kinds of people in the world. People who see that and know who sent Jesus, and people who see that and reject who sent Jesus. Jesus has zero interest in coexisting with the other gods of our culture. And he makes it very, very clear here, I will either be received or I will be rejected. First point, what we're getting at here. We see in Jesus' explanation an aversion by association. Aversion by association. Now, if you're not a Christian, or if you've only been coming to church a little bit while, the language may seem really strong to you. In fact, you may disagree with it. You're like, that's not how I feel. My hope is to kind of unpack this along the way and see if we can make a little bit more sense out of why, out of what Jesus is saying here. You know, but one of the first questions is, is why the hatred? You know, why, why the rejection? What is it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus' followers that would be rejected, that would be hated? Well, he says specifically in verse 19, if the world, however, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it. Being not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it. That idea of being chosen goes along in scripture with being set apart, being different, being unique. And again, those who love Jesus obey Jesus. People who look like Jesus represent him in the world. And so when you come to that place, the question becomes, what is it about Christianity that makes people reject Jesus? Two things. This is varied over time. This is varied in history, depending on your culture, perhaps. But in the Western individualistic culture we live in, two big things about Jesus, two big things about Christianity that would lead to rejection. At the very core of Jesus' teaching, these are the two things. Christians are called to admit our need for a Savior. And Christians are called to actually surrender. At the core of Christianity, we admit our need for a savior and we admit our need to surrender. And those things run against everything that our Western American context would like to admit. Just to back these up with scripture so you're not taking my words for it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He goes on three chapters later, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our need for a savior. This is what the Bible says our need for a savior. John 14, six, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Making it very clear. Jesus isn't gonna coexist with any other God. Jesus is the only way to God. We see our need for a savior but we also see our need to surrender. Luke 9, 23. Then Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, this is tough, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. 
That's surrender. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. These are two ideas at the very core of Christianity that, that all of us have a need for a savior because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And all of us have a need to surrender to that God, which is why the gospel is Jesus is Lord. But what do we see in our culture? Our world doesn't see a need for a savior and our world doesn't need to see a need to surrender. In fact, these things are deeply impalatable. Is that a word? Unpalatable to our culture. Robert Bella from Berkeley, uh, in, in one of his lectures, he says this, and indeed we find as we probe the characteristics of American middle-class culture, a form of life organized around a, rent, a relentless pursuit of individual autonomy, a quest for the self, for leaving the past and the social structures that have previously enveloped us, for stripping off the obligations and restraints imposed by others until at last we find the true self, which is unique and individual, entirely different from anyone else. He summarizes all of his work uh, uh, on, on this idea of, of, of individualism and commitment in a book called Habits of the Heart, and he summarizes it, American culture, with this sentence. We see a deep desire for autonomy and self Reliance, autonomy and self-reliance. Now we're gonna break those two things down. Autonomy and self-reliance. Autonomy, let's start with this. We live in a society that worships autonomy. Hear this, civil liberties is not bad. Constitutional rights are not a bad thing. I'm not dogging those, don't hear what I'm not saying. But our culture and society has deeply internalized the concept of, I do what I want and you can't tell me any different. America. I have a child, one of my children, some of you will be able to guess, who is a contrarian in every possible way. And if I wanna get him to go outside, I have to say, you're not allowed to go outside. <laughs> a lot of us, you don't tell me what I do, I do what I want. It's one of my kids. I found a really funny example, not a political statement. This is an observation. So if you get offended by this, then God's doing something in your heart, okay? The, uh, I read a CNN article that described Barack Obama as the best gun salesman in the country. When he came into office, the first week in office, there was a 50% spike in gun purchases year over year. Every time he talked about gun control, gun purchases spiked. Why? Because you tell people you can't do this in America, what are they gonna do? I don't, pff, you ain't telling me what to do. I'm gonna go buy more. Observation. We see this in our culture. Autonomy, not necessarily bad, but what happens when it becomes idolized? Nearly all the pain and the suffering that you've experienced in this world is tied to someone saying at some point, forget God, I do what I want. The betrayal that you've experienced, someone saying, forget God, I do what I want. Broken relationships, broken marriages, broken friendships, someone saying, forget God, I do what I want. That's what underlays the sin and the brokenness we see in our world. 
And Christians, we got to be careful because this creeps into the church and it creeps into our lives. God says to the believer, don't want what other people have. It's envy. Mm, I do what I want. God calls our speech to be edifying, to build others up. And we're like, oh, well, when the Bible was written, Facebook wasn't around, so that must not count. I do what I want. God says to forgive as he's forgiven you. It doesn't apply to me. I do what I want. God asks his people to give joyfully and sacrificially. I do what I want. Finally, God says to pray throughout the day to stay in constant contact with him. Mm. Sorry, God, I do what I want. We have to be careful with how we let autonomy govern. Not just autonomy, but self-reliance. Our society worships self-reliance. Now, I want to be careful again. We're not disparaging people who work hard and people who experience different kinds of personal success because of their hard work. Not at all. But there is such an expectation in our society at some point where you look at someone who needs help and say, they should be able to do it by themselves. Or when you're unwilling to ask for help because I really don't want to inconvenience anybody. Read a study this week that found the poorer you are, the less likely you are to ask for help. Thought that was interesting. Many of us refusing are willing to acknowledge our need for help. Think of Tim the Toolman Taylor, for those of you who remember that. Hear this. The problem is that when self-reliance is idolized, we no longer see our need for a savior. The problem is that when autonomy becomes radicalized, we no longer see our need to surrender. Let me say that again. The problem is that when self-reliance is idolized, we no longer see our need for a savior. The problem is that when our autonomy becomes radicalized, we no longer see our need to surrender. And the subconscious of our culture impresses upon us, you're in charge of you and you are enough. And yet nonetheless, many people in this room have felt deep down that I'm not enough and doing things my way isn't working. And so what happens when that mindset is confronted by Jesus or confronted by followers of Jesus? They either surrender or they don't. They either embrace a savior or they don't. And there's no middle ground. Robert Bella summarizes again after talking about autonomy and self-reliance leading to people seeking private fulfillment in American life. He goes on to say that this quest for purely private fulfillment is illusory. It often ends in emptiness instead. It's our culture. To the Christian, have you seen this cultural norm creep into your life? Are they hanging around? Have you felt the temptation perhaps to even look at your own moral goodness as, and use it as a basis for what God thinks of you? That's self-reliance. Do you avoid God when thinking about what you want to do with your home? the people you want to bless with it, the individuals and families you want to host? Do you avoid God when thinking about your money, how much you will spend and what you will spend it on? Do you avoid God when planning your time, perhaps your most precious asset? And all these things, the need for autonomy creeps in and we forget our need to surrender. And to the person here who doesn't consider themselves Christian, have you sensed the lack of satisfaction the kind of emptiness that Bella says this kind of autonomy and self-reliance can lead to. 
Perhaps it's because you're in need of a savior and to surrender. John continues, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. Now that's, that's, that's interesting. What does he mean by that? If Jesus hadn't have come, would people have not been punished for their sin? Get there. Verse 23. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them so that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. I want to clarify something real quick. When it says the one who hates me hates my father, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. God in the flesh. Everything he does, everything he says is what he sees the father doing and saying. Sent. And so he's making this comparison that people hate him because they hated father. They're going to hate the Christian perhaps because they hate Jesus. They're making that connection there. First thing I want to clarify. Ooh, that sounds strange. A little echoey. If I got to grab a mic, let me know. Ooh. Sin is real. Sin is real. Now, verse 22, it says, if I hadn't come, they would be not guilty of their sin. They would have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, they would not have sin. And so you look at that, and you wonder, what is he saying? What is he talking about? And you can look at other texts in the Bible, and when you come to something and it's tough, you read it in the light of what we see elsewhere. Paul in Romans 5 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world, I'd rather go without a mic. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Isaiah 59, 12, For our transgressions have multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Check, check, check. Let me just say that. Sin is real. Sin is real. So when he says, when he says, not guilty of sin, what in the world is he talking about? And, and every commentator, every historian that I read zeroing in on this in the context of, 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 of the situation points to the particular revelation of, of Jesus. D.A. Carson, one historian, puts it this way, that rather by coming and speaking to them, Jesus incited the most central and controlling of sins, the rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, decisive preference for darkness rather than light. The second thing here, we see a rejection of God's revelation in Jesus. And what's important here to know is that when we are confronted with our inadequacies, when we are confronted with our failures, when we're confronted with our mistakes, generally we respond in one of two ways. Apologetic, or anger, bitterness, hatred. And, and I'll give you an example. You got something on your phone that shouldn't be there and it gets discovered by your spouse. Do you become apologetic 
I wronged you, I'm sorry. Or do you get really angry? How dare you snoop around my stuff and deflect? Which, by the way, when you get married, none of your stuff belongs to you anymore. So just put that out there. Some of you have done 60 plus on Route 12. If you were out there speeding, we got cops in here. We won't go, we, 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 we won't raise hands. But, but you get caught going too fast and you get pulled aside and you know you saw that person who, who, who was going faster than you. And the cop walks up and you're clearly guilty. Is it, I was going too fast and I'm sorry? Or is it, I'm really upset that they didn't get that guy instead of me? Or I'm just upset that I got caught. And you take it out on the police officer. When we're confronted by our issues, we're confronted, our mistakes and our brokenness, it would lead to either, on the one hand, an acknowledgement and an apology, or on the second hand, anger, bitterness, or rejection. Jesus comes in the flesh. God in the flesh. Love incarnate. He does amazing things. He teaches people about the kingdom of God. People who can't walk can walk. People who can't see can see. He teaches things that make the religious elite uncomfortable. And he, he, God incarnate comes and they don't like it. The authority of this Jesus is a threat. And so what do you do? You talk about autonomy now, you talk about autonomy then. I heard one pastor put it this way. As soon as God became killable, we killed him. As soon as God became killable, we killed him. And so they become guilty of this sin. Really, the, 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 the culpability rises amongst the people as they reject God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, decisively preferring darkness over light. I have three things in the way of application for us this morning. Three things. First, as we think about the relationship of the Christian to the world. One, we live on mission. You think about what Christ is saying to his men about what they're going to encounter once they leave, to his disciples, what they're going to encounter once they leave. Our lives are a witness to the goodness of God, but to some, our love for Jesus will make us unlovable. But hear this, this is really important. This is really important. Do not confuse being hated and being a Christian, being rejected and being a Christian, do not confuse that for being rejected because I'm a Christian. You go out and you lack a lot of grace and you get on Facebook with that stranger on someone else's feed and you never met them and you're really excited to just let them know why they're wrong and you have zero interest in actually them coming to know Jesus, you just wanna make sure that they know you're right and they may get upset and they may reject you. That's not the love of Jesus in you. You may say, you may be hated or rejected by people for, let's be real, being an idiot or doing stupid things. 
overly judgmental, whatever it is. You can't confuse that. The goal isn't to be hated. The goal is to live out the light and love of Jesus, to stand firmly in the convictions that we have in Jesus, that our need to surrender, our need for that Savior, and one of the natural outcomes is that when the world encounters Jesus through us, some people just won't like it. And when we get there, that persecution may take all, all sorts of shapes and sizes, but when we get there, we're encouraged. Luke 6, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Why? Because he's right there with you. You're experiencing as he experienced. That's first. We live on mission. Our lives are to be a witness. Two, we do not need to make Jesus palatable. I do not need to water down Jesus in order to get people to like him. Because the truth of the matter is, when people encounter the true Jesus, they're going to either receive him or reject him. There's no middle ground. If I can convince somebody to receive a watered down Jesus that is not interested in changing their hearts, that's not actually interested in changing their lives, if I can convince them to receive that Jesus, they haven't actually received Jesus at all. There's no point. Jesus says to his people as they're about to go out, people aren't going to like you. Application number three, as we read this, we should have cause to reflect on our own lives. Jesus says to his followers, if you are not of the world, you'll experience the rejection and aversion by the world. So the necessary question becomes, if you never experience that, is it because you look just like the world? Is it because you spend your time like the world spends its time? Is it because we spend our money the way the world spends its money? Is it because we respond to crisis and chaos the way the world responds to crisis and chaos? Do we condemn and judge quickly like the world does? Do we respond in anger? Are we slow to forgive as the world is? Do we delight in what the world delights in? The question is, church, how worldly is your world? How worldly is your world? Tonight, on a Monday morning, on a Friday night, on your sports team, when you're with coworkers, when you go to the bar, when you're at a family gathering with that in-law that drives you nuts, how worldly is your world? when you're alone and no one's around and you got a screen all to yourself. How worldly is your world? And I feel like all of us need to leave, need to ask that question. We need to go to God. We need to read the word. We need to feel the conviction of the spirit. And when God shows you an area of your life that is just worldly, we can either say, I do what I want. Or we can say, I surrender. If you're not a Christian this morning, you don't identify with that, you've been here, you've heard, you're, maybe you're here for the first time, whatever that might be, but you, you sense and in, in, in the emptiness that Rob Bella talked about makes sense to you, and you're interested in learning more about this Jesus, we would encourage you to come and to speak with us. We would love to pray with you. I'm going to hang out up here in the front afterwards. Christians, to be a Christian is to surrender. Jesus is Lord and to embrace him as our savior.
because he went to the cross. He died the sinner's death so that we, by trusting him, would participate in his victory over Satan's sin and death. That's what it is to be a Christian. And so as you go out, three things. We're on mission. Remember, we're on mission. Jesus is not meant to be palatable, so stop trying. And third, reflect. How worldly is your world? Bow your heads, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the time that we have. We thank you for John, Lord, your beloved disciple, and for him taking these words down. God, I pray that you would lay upon our hearts whatever truths and challenges that we need, that you would shape us and transform us, our hearts and our minds, Lord, our relationships, our friendships, the way that we love our spouses and our roommates, the way we love our kids and raise them up. Lord, that you would challenge us. Help us to notice, give us antennas to see where worldliness creeps into our own lives. God, we want to live out your love and your light in this world. Prepare us and fortify us for challenges and rejection, but help us nonetheless to be gracious with those whom with we disagree. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.